Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. This Word that reminds us of how much we need You and Your wisdom, O Lord. How we ought not to be confident in ourselves, but rather that we must know that we serve You, O Lord, and that You have provided for us, and You are indeed the One who protects us and cares for us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. When do we really need God? Is it just when we think we need God? What happens to us when we think we are in control? When we think we have an easy pass? Do we forget our need of the Lord? Do we strike out on our own thinking that this is not something that we need to bother God with, that we can handle it. This is the story of Joshua 9. It is the story of the Israelites who were called to depend upon the Lord their God in all they did in conquering the land. And yet, they came to a situation in which they felt it was well within their ability and in their hands. And they did not seek the help of the Lord their God. They did not realize that it is not just the power of God that we need, but it is the wisdom of God as well. Would it be that the Lord would teach us from the errors of the Israelites that we would understand our own need of God? Let's begin then by looking at our text, by looking at how the Israelites lack wisdom how they lack the wisdom to make the decisions that are needed. There is, once again here, a change in the view of the conflict between Israel and the Canaanites. Israel has come across the Jordan in force. They have defeated Jericho. And now, for the first time at the beginning of chapter 9, we read of the enemy rallying against Israel. Up until this point, the Canaanites were content to fight Israel one tribe at a time. They were content to simply wait for Israel to come and attack them. But now they realize the danger that they are in. They realize the promise that the Lord has given to Israel is seeing fulfillment, especially after the great city of Jericho has been defeated. And so now they band together... To attack Israel. This would appear to be the result not so much of the battle at Jericho as the battle at Ai. You see, there's been one fundamental change in the campaign. For the first time, Israel has known a defeat in battle. You recall that that was the result of the sin of Achan in taking from Jericho what he had been forbidden to take. And because of that, Israel was defeated in their first attack on Ai. And you can just imagine how that would have emboldened the Canaanites. Israel isn't an unstoppable force. They can be beaten. We just need to gather together and go after them. But there's another opinion in the land as well. Verse 3 tells us about the Gibeonites. 
Gibeon was a town just a few miles northwest of Jerusalem, perhaps five or six miles away. And the Gibeonites did not join the coalition against Israel. Why? You see, they took a different lesson from Jericho and Ai. They understood the power of God, and they were afraid. And they realized that their only hope against Israel was somehow to trick Israel into making peace with them, so that they could be free from attack. You see, they wanted to trick the Israelites into peace, but the problem is, is that they had already heard Israel's plan. They already knew the command of God. We know this from verse 24. We knew for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded Moses to give you the land and to destroy all the inhabitants in that land. That was the problem that they faced. So what they had to do was to convince Israel that they were not nearby so that they could make peace with the Israelites. They may also have heard of another command that was given to the Israelites by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where Moses tells the Israelites, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be forced to labor for you and shall serve you. But there is a requirement here found in Deuteronomy 20, verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. You see, Israel could make peace with the city, but by definition, it had to be very far away. Now, that's a problem for the Gibeonites, because they are manifestly not very far away. They're actually the opposite. They're very close. They're almost on top of Jerusalem. And so what they do is they come up with a plan. It's ingenious if you think about it. They want to make it seem like they have come on a long journey. And as the tale is put together, they leave no detail left out. They make sure the bread is stale. That the wineskins are old looking and split. They even take their worst shoes and clothes to make it seem as they were ragged from a long desert march. They do everything they can to make it seem like they have come an incredible distance. And all of this is designed to convince the Israelites' eyes. Now they also bring something else, a convincing report. Look at verses 9 and 10. From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. We might put it this way, freely translating it, we've come from a distant country because of who your God is. Remember what the name of the Lord is. I am who I am. So we have heard of your God, and we have heard of His mighty deeds. And of course, they wax eloquent about the mighty deeds of the Lord in Egypt. 
and the mighty deeds of the Lord on the other side of Jordan. But you see the subtlety and the detail of their plan by what they leave out. They don't say anything about Jericho, do they? They don't say anything about Ai, do they? Why? Well, because they've come from a long distance. If they had truly come from such a long distance, they wouldn't even have heard that news. And so they are keeping perfectly in character. They have a plan here to deceive the Israelites. It is a cunning deception. But the deception is only as good as the Israelites' ability to fall for it. And the Israelites then begin to ignore a need that they have. You see, Israel trusted the Lord when they knew they had to. When they were up against the city of Jericho with its mighty walls and its mighty army inside, they knew they had to trust God. It was not within their power to do this. When God had revealed His wrath against Israel for the sin of Achan, they knew they had to trust God to cleanse them from sin. They knew they couldn't be free from that on their own. So you see, when the need was obvious and was before them, they trusted the Lord. But now here, they make a fatal mistake. Look at verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. You see, what the Israelites are doing here is they are thinking that the only thing that matters is the material and the physical. They're forgetting that this is not just a physical battle, but it is a spiritual battle as well. And that they need spiritual weaponry and that they need a spiritual reliance upon the Lord. So you could just imagine them. They take the bread and they break it and they crumble it and they taste it. Oh yeah, this is stale. This has got to be a month old. Who knows how long they've gone. Look at the hole in his shoe. Could you imagine him walking around with that hole in that shoe? These these people have got to have come hundreds, thousands of miles away. Look, we can see it with our own eyes. We can feel it with our own hands. Surely they are not from nearby. They looked with their eyes. They did the best they could to perceive. But the one thing they didn't do was they did not go to the Lord. Now, I want you to understand here that the Israelites were not foolish. It's not as if they didn't examine the matter. They were actually, if you understand the text, they were pretty suspicious. Look at verse 7. Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? This is after they've seen them. Now, they may not have put a spotlight upon the Gibeonites. They may not have given them the third degree. But there's a little bit of skepticism here that the Israelites have. They're asking the right questions. And they have a suspicion. It's not that Israel was being sloppy. Their problem was that they were alone. They didn't seek the Lord's help. The question then comes to us, do we need the guidance of God only when we are in doubt? 
The problem here is that the Israelites thought they had this matter well in hand. It was not a difficult matter. If something harder had come to them, they would have sought the Lord. But here, they thought they could handle it on their own. But the irony is, is that the hardest thing for the people of God to do is to determine the reality of a spiritual testimony. This is what the Israelites are hearing in verses 9 through 11. We've come because we've heard of the Lord your God and His name, and we've heard of His mighty deeds. The last time the Israelites heard this kind of confession of faith, it came from Rahab. And it was from the heart, and it was truthful, and it was about a conversion to the Lord. How can we tell the difference between Rahab and the Gibeonites? I think the story here reminds us that if we try to do so in our own strength and power, with our own wits, we are on dangerous ground. You see, we are tempted to think that we only need God's power. And we forget we need His wisdom also. It's easy to see when we are powerless and we need the help of God. But it's not as easy to see when we need wisdom. And often we ignore this just like the Israelites did. So the Israelites make a covenant with the people of Gibeon. And that brings us to the second scene of our text this evening. The Israelites then begin living with the consequences of their actions. You see, the ruse was discovered... Joshua tells us it's only been three days in verse 16. Now, we don't know how this was discovered. Perhaps the Israelites looked and pointed at Gibeon and said, there looks like a good city, let's go attack it. And the Gibeonites would have to say, well, actually, that's our town. We kind of got this peace treaty thing going on here. You can't attack that. Or perhaps the Gibeonites were having dinner and had a bit too much to drink and they were bold in saying how they had deceived the Israelites and how happy they were that they were able to obtain a peace treaty and the Israelites overheard them. We don't know. We don't even know from our text that when the Israelites come up to the cities of of the Gibeonites that whether it is after or before they find out about the falsehood and the ruse. But the leaders realize the dilemma that they are in because they have sworn a covenant. Now, in ancient Israel, a covenant was a very serious matter. Sometimes a covenant is described like a contract, but it is so much more than that because we live in a day and age in which people flippantly break and violate contracts. They make an analysis as to whether they will be better off violating the contract or keeping it. And if it's better for them, they will break the contract without a second thought. We are past the days when a man's word is his bond. I used to find it very curious how we try to get all the assurances we can that someone will live up to their word. 
One of the things that happened to me when I practiced as an attorney was you would draft up documents that had all sorts of covenants and promises in them. And you would have parties sign them to say they would keep them. And an interesting phenomenon began to arise. Many parties, and even lawyers, would want these contracts to be notarized. Now, you may not know this, but I can tell you as an attorney that there is almost no reason ever to notarize a contract. The only things that need to be notarized are items or documents that need to be filed in the records of the court or the county. If you have a simple sales contract, a notary does absolutely nothing for you. Nothing at all. Well, why then would someone go to the lengths of trying to find a notary and have these notarized? It's because we don't trust people to keep their word. So we try to find more and more ways to bind people to their word. And this was the problem for the people of God here. They were upset, Joshua tells us. They didn't want to lose the plunder that could be had from these cities. They were perhaps afraid of keeping the Canaanites in their midst. They wanted to go back on their oath. In their mind, we had been tricked. So therefore, the agreement is null and void. We don't need to keep our word because they didn't keep their word. We don't understand why the leaders prevent the people from getting their way. Because we don't, if we're honest, really like what's going on here, do we? Why should Israel have to live with the consequences of this action? Shouldn't one good trick deserve another? And this is often the temptation that comes to us. A temptation to fight on the world's terms. When someone treats us shamefully, when someone lies or tricks us, when someone is wicked to us or harsh to us, we feel justified in repaying that to them. Even though we are called to a higher standard as the people of God. You see, the truth is, is that the circumstances... Do not go away. The difficulties that Israel is facing here are not dissolved. The people of God are called to live obediently in the midst of the result of their own foolishness. The leaders knew they had sworn, and in spite of the deception of the Gibeonites, they would not break their oath. And I think it's also likely that they knew it was their fault because they had failed to go to the Lord in prayer. They had failed to seek the Lord's wisdom. And so they were stuck with the consequences of failing to heed the Lord. Psalm 15 describes the man who comes to the place of the Lord. He is the man who swears to his own hurt. And does not repent of it. You see, sin can be forgiven. But the consequences of sin remain. If you murder someone, you will go to jail. You can repent of that sin and seek forgiveness of the Lord your God. And you will be free from the wrath of God from that sin. 
but it doesn't mean they open up the bars and let you out of jail. You have to live with the consequences of that. This is what Israel understood through its leaders. Later on in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 21, we read of a three-year famine that fell upon Israel. And David did not understand why this famine was afflicting Israel. And he went and he sought the Lord. And the Lord told him it was because Saul had killed Gibeonites. And because Saul had violated the covenant in his zeal to please the people of God. Israel was suffering under the curse of God. We need to remember this as we look back at our lives. That just because we come to Jesus in faith does not mean everything in our lives magically becomes perfect. That all of the circumstances and consequences that have been built up are gone. I think... One good illustration of this that's found very practically is marriage. You need to be very careful about choosing a spouse for marriage. Because you see, once you choose a spouse, the scripture tells you that God hates divorce. And that you are not to be freed except in certain circumscribed instances. The adultery of that spouse or abandonment by that spouse. You can't say, well, you know, I didn't think it would be this hard. I love Jesus and I want to be free of this difficulty. You can't say, I wasn't a Christian. And so I didn't think much about the importance of spiritual things. So I want to be free from this spouse. That's not how it works. There are consequences to our actions. Our oath is our oath. God loves us and forgives us. But that does not change our circumstances in every event. So what then happens to the Gibeonites? The third thing that we see in our text this evening is light in the midst of darkness. The Gibeonites shouldn't be rewarded for their deception, should they? But Israel will honor its oath. The Gibeonites also seem to recognize their own sin in this entire process. And they are basically ready to surrender to Israel. They say as much in verse 25. We are now in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do. There was... A consequence for the Gibeonites. Joshua tells them that they are cursed in verse 23. They would no longer be free. They would no longer be in control of their own lives. They were to be woodcutters and water drawers. The lowest of low servants. But in a sense, they got what they hoped for. Life. But there's something more at work here. There is also hope found with the Lord. Because the Lord is a God who brings light out of darkness. He brings life from death. He brings hope from hopelessness. 
Let your eyes go down to verse 27. Where do the Gibeonites serve? They serve at the altar of the Lord. From now on, they are to be with the altar of the Lord. They had the privilege of being close to spiritual things. All they wanted was physical safety. But what they got was so much more. During all the rest of the war that is described in the book of Joshua, they never once betrayed Israel. They were loyal the entire time. They never went back to the coalition of Canaanites. And when the war was over, the town of Gibeon was given to the line of Aaron to be a part of the priestly clan. If you think about Gibeon, Gibeon was a place where David brought the Ark of the Covenant. Gibeon was a place where Solomon went to offer sacrifice and offerings. And perhaps most remarkably, when the exiles returned from Babylon and they had to list off their lineage to show that they were a part of the people of Israel, Gibeonites were found in the registry. Even when there were some Jews who were not. The Gibeonites were a part of those who rebuilt the walls in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They had found hope with God, whose name they had heard. You see, this is another lesson for us. The Lord our God doesn't always change all of our circumstances. But in addition to forgiving us, the Lord transforms us. The Lord takes us to a place where we are found in His presence, where we have spiritual things, where we can experience the love of God and the fellowship of His people. The lesson of Joshua chapter 9 is that we should not squander the great blessings that God gives to us in His relationship with us. We should realize that we always need the Lord, that He is the source of our hope. He is the source of our life. And in doing so, we will indeed be blessed. Blessed to be found as a part of the covenant people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this evening for a reminder that our word is indeed our bond. And that because that is so critically important, that we must be careful as we examine our own lives and the lives of others. That we must seek you out, O Lord, in prayer. That we must desire to be found in your midst. That we must not trust in our own strength. We must not lean to our own understanding. But that we must trust in you, O Lord. Help us to do that this week. Help us to look upon you. To know that you indeed are our Lord and our God. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.